We are continuing our series on the book of Samuel. The story gets more exciting as we go along. This is like, you know, the, the phrase Alice in Wonderland going down the rabbit hole. Let me just backtrack a little bit so that we can catch up with the story, just in case you were not here last Sunday. So we're moving in the story where Israel has reached its, its zenith of unfaithfulness. The priests were corrupt. Um, their dad, the high priest, was complicit. Uh, the priests were corrupt because they were taking what belongs to God. And their dad, the high priest, was taking part of it. This family reflects the spiritual condition of the entire nation of Israel. And so if the, if the high priests and his sons, the priests, are corrupt, how much more it trickles down to the nation of Israel, to everyone at the bottom, so that we can say that the whole nation of God has reached the zenith of its unfaithfulness. So much so that when they went to battle against the Philistines, they lost. It's, uh, it's obvious. God's favor was not with them. And so they thought, maybe we can do something else to win the battle, so they resorted to magic. They brought the Ark of the Covenant in the battle camp, thinking that we can pressure God by bringing the Ark of the Covenant, His presence, in the battlefront so that the Philistines will think we have God on our side. It's a big mistake. They went to battle. They lost big time. 30,000 soldiers died. The two high priests, the two priests, rather, died and were massacred. The high priest, when he got the news, he fell backwards. He died of shock. The Ark of the Covenant was captured by the enemy. The question is, what does it mean? What does it mean for the Ark of God to be captured by the enemy? See, the Ark of God and the symbols of priesthood is the very symbol of the identity of Israel. Remember, way back in Exodus, when they came out crossing the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 says, and they will become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That will be their identity. So that means their identity rests on the fact that they have the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and they are priests of God. Now that they have lost the Ark of the Covenant and the priest died, they too have lost their identity. But the more important question, I think, is what's the deeper meaning behind the capture of the Ark of the Covenant? Why did God allow the Ark of the Covenant to be captured? Now, we find that answer in the birth of an Israelite at that moment when the high priest died. This boy was born, he was given a unique name. His name was Ikavod or Ikabod. It means what happened to the glory. It means also the glory of God has departed because the glory of God is symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant. And if the Ark of the Covenant was captured, the glory of God has departed from Israel. What this means is that if God himself allowed the ark to be captured, it's not because he was weak, not because it was his kryptonite, or not because during that day he was not on his best toes. It's just because that God wants to prove something. God wants to prove that he is king, not just with Israel, but the whole world. So the ark of the Philistines, the ark was captured by the Philistines, and God revealed his power over Dagon by destroying the Dagon's idol. And he wreaked havoc in the land of the Philistines by plaguing them with tumors. Now, last week, we talked about what happened in the land of the Philistines. There were tumors everywhere. There was a, an, uh, 
I should not say a pandemic, there was an outbreak of disease. This, this plague, particular plague, was very reminiscent of what happened in the land of Egypt, the sixth plague, where people suffered from boils all over their body. And this was, to the Philistines, a clear demonstration of God's power. This is undeniable. God's power was behind everything that was happening over them. But the question is, what was God trying to prove with the plague? It's not just that he is more powerful than Dagon. That's proven. That's given. It's the same message that he wants to tell the Israelites that he wants also to tell the Philistines. It is this, that he alone is God and no one else. This is the message from Genesis all the way to Revelation. He is God and no one else. He's not just among the many gods. There's only one. This is very explicit in the Decalogue. The first commandment says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Bow to no other gods. You shall have no other gods. This was seconded by the book of Deuteronomy in the Shema. All the Israelites would always refer back to the Shema, which means listen. This is my daughter whenever she says something, and I don't listen. Daddy, 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 daddy. (laughs) Listen, listen. This is Israel. This is God telling Israel, listen, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, this is explicit. The Lord is one and unique. He has no equal. He is no other God like him. In the category of gods, there's no other gods like him. What he was trying to tell the Philistines is the same thing that he's trying to tell the Israelites. He alone is God. Not Dagon, not Baal, not Ashtoreth, not the mighty U.S. dollar, not the industrial machine that runs the world. Yahweh alone is God and King. So the story says that for seven months, there was an outbreak in the land of Philistia. And so after seven months, they decided enough is enough. We have, we have suffered long enough. If we do not stop this, we will all die. So they said, we have to find a way to beg the God of Israel to take back the plague so that we will live. This is what they said in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. In verse 2, it says, And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to its place. And the diviner said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him with a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. It sounds smart. It sounds very practical. So they decided to return the ark. They decided to appease Yahweh by offering him a bribe. It's not an offering. It's a bribe. There's a big difference between a bribe and an offering. A bribe is something that you give in order to gain favor. It's called a bribe. It's what you put in an envelope, you slip it in to sweeten the deal. It's a bribe. It's not an offering. An offering is a gift. A gift is offered without asking for something in return. Are you still with me? There's a difference between a bribe and an offering. What the Philistines are giving is a bribe, not an offering. They are giving an offering just so that God will take away the plague in their land. That's a bribe. Because in the Philistine religion, they, know, they do not understand what it means to give God an offering. What they understood is simply to relate to a deity by giving him bribes so that they will be blessed. It must be reciprocal in that sense. See, the religion of Judaism is not reciprocal. 
Because offering to God does not necessarily entail a return of investment. That's a bribe. That's not an offering. And so I'm thinking when I was doing this sermon, what is the main motivation why we give? Some people think that because God doesn't need anything, they don't need to give. And it's true. God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need anything from anyone. It's true. But we don't give because God needs something. We give because we love. Are you with me? Gifts objectify our gratefulness. You cannot just come to church and say, God, thank you. I worship you. You are so good. You have blessed me with all these things. Thank you. Without objectifying your gratefulness, this is just cheap words. See, let me explain this. Worship is basically an act of emptying yourself. When we worship, is an act of offering yourself to God. Because God doesn't want a part of you or something from you. God wants all of you. This is the reason why King David, when he was trying to determine to build the temple in Jerusalem, he went to a place, an elevated place, and it was the perfect setup where he will build the temple of Jerusalem. But it was owned by someone. And so he offered to buy the place, but that someone said, you are king, you can take whatever you want. But David said this in Chronicles 21 verse 24. He said, no, but I will buy them for full price because I will not take for the Lord what is yours nor offer burnt offerings that costs me nothing. Offerings to God that bribes, offerings to God must cost something. And for David, he understood. See, the one thing that really hurts when we give It's not our wealth. It's not a 10% or 20% or whatever. Because you can always earn it back next month. What really is difficult to give is yourself. Ourselves. It's, It's hard to give yourself. That is why the scriptures say from Genesis to Revelation that when we worship God, if we want relationship with God, if we want to really offer ourselves in worship, you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your minds, all your souls. It's all of you, not just some part of you. It's all of you. See, without this, this is not worship. It's simply a bribe. When you give God loose change, it's not worship. It's not acceptable to God. Real worship is giving your all. I'm not mad. I'm just perk up. (laughs) Listen, because when we have given up your heart, your soul, and mind, Everything else follows. What I'm saying is that your resources, your security, your health, your future plans, even your love lives or your addictions, when you have given all your heart, your soul, and your mind, the next thing you give is not a bribe. The next thing you give is an offering. Because it's easy to give when you have given everything up. Would you say amen to that? A bribe is when you say, God, I give, so you owe me. That's a bribe. A bribe is when you say, Lord, I gave you 10%, so you owe me. That's a bribe. See, when you have given yourself to God, whatever you give next is called an offering because an offering is a gift and you're not expecting something in return. It has no strings attached. There's no conditions. It's purely a gift. It's what you give on a Christmas day, on a birthday. You don't say, hey, Happy birthday. This is your gift. Where's mine? That's not a gift. See, when you give to God, when we give to God, we give an offering without strings attached. 
We're not expecting something in return. It's, it's purely given. But see, the Philistines did not know this. So they decided to give God a bribe, five golden tumors and five golden Mickey Mouse. Of course, it's not in the Bible. It's golden mice, but it's Mickey Mouse. The tumors represent the f- disease. I don't know how it looks. It boils. I don't know how it grows. <laughs> the mice represents the five Philistine kings. Now, this is what it said in verse 5. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Now, now that's, that sounds good, but what gets me is this next one. It says, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. You see this. Behind the decision to return the Ark of the Covenant, behind the decision to give bribes to God is surrender but not submission. And they're saying, we are defeated, okay, please stop the plague, but we are not submitting to you. See, notice the last statement. It says, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. They're not giving up their gods. They're not giving up their lands. They're not giving up anything to God. It's just surrender without submission. What that means is that if the bribes work, God will withdraw the plague and they will still get to keep their lands, their health, their gods. It's like saying to God, Bye-bye, good riddance. Please go away. This is exactly what's on their mind. It's not because they acknowledge God is really an awesome God. He's powerful beyond measure. And there's no other God but Him. It's only surrender but no submission. There's no remorse. There's no repentance. There's no submission. This is like a guy who's saying after knowing that God is awesome, God knows, they know who God is and what he can do. This is the guy who raises his fist to the heavens and say, I know you're God, but I don't care. See, the way the Philistines returned the ark was too in question. So they decided to put the ark, so they can return the ark, in a cart. And on top of the cart, they also put their bribes, the, the five tumors and the five Mickey Mouse. And they put two milking cows on top, sorry, in front of the ark. So two milking cows were pulling the ark. And you know the idea behind this one? Is if these are milking cows, normally the milking cows will not go to the direction of Israel. They will just simply go back to their young because they feed their young. So they think if we just put the ark on the cart, pulled by two milking cows, and let them go, maybe if it goes to the direction of Israel, maybe it's really God who's behind all this. But if the milking cows do not go to Israel, they come back to us, not, it's not God, it's not Yahweh. Maybe Dagon's just sleeping. So they thought, well, let's see. See, again, what they're saying here is that there's defiance in here. Up to the very last, they cannot believe that it's God who's causing this. There's so much antagonism with Yahweh. Verse 12. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along with one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. I wish Christians would be like this. 
turning neither to the right or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. I mean, the, the, the kings of the Philistines, they cannot really, they cannot determine if it's really God or not. So up to the last moment, they have doubts. Maybe, maybe God is not behind all this. So they followed the ark all the way to the border. This is about 15 miles from Ekron all the way to Beth Shemesh, the border of Israel and Philistine. They're trying to see if the, if the cows will come back. And it did not. In fact, when the cart reached the field of Joshua, the cart stopped. The cows knew as if that was their final destination. And having seen all this, the Philistine lords went back and they knew God was there. See, having even recognized that it was God all along who was doing all the plague to them, there was no surrender. There's just an acknowledgement that they were defeated, but there's no submission. Now, sudden twist in the story. The cart arrived. The people were so happy. Finally, we have the ark back. The glory of God has returned. Yes! So they rejoiced. And the people of Beth Shemesh, Shemesh have finally seen this golden ark. Now, look at this. Imagine this. The people of Beth Shemesh have not seen the ark yet because the ark of the covenant was kept inside the most holy place for years. For years, nobody has seen the Ark of the Covenant because it's been placed in Shiloh for many years. This is the same Ark that Aaron used to go and visit inside the temple once a year. Once a year. No one has seen this. And now it is within their reach. They can see it. Ark of the Covenant. Wow. This is the presence of God in here. The visible presence of God. Let's look at it. And so the Bible said they attempted to open the lid and look into it. You see the problem there? The problem there is that their action was an act of contempt. What, what's really is, what's really is the, the idea behind opening the lid? You see, the story begins... With opening the statement, the ark of God was with the Philistine for seven months. What's with the seven months? Seven months is a figure of speech to represent a complete length of God's judgment. But the story ends as well by saying that in the people of Beth Shemesh, 70 people died. Let's read that. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and whom shall we go up away from us? The people of Beth tried to look into the ark. Anyone seen the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, Right? We watched it with uh, Kath and I watched it uh, last week. We seen to the very end. They they opened the, the lid of the ark. The lid of the ark where there were two cherubim. They opened the lid. They reached their hand into it, and they died. All the bad guys died. Now, it doesn't it doesn't say that this is what exactly happened here. But what said here was that they looked into the ark and God struck them. 70 people died just by looking into the ark. This is scary. 
what if the ark is here? What are we going to do? So the story ends with saying that 70 people died. What is this really? See, if you compare this act of contempt, it is when the Philistines put the ark in the temple of Dagon, Dagon, that was a contempt. It was like they were collecting gods. When the people of Beth Shemesh looked into the ark, again, it was an act of contempt. It's like saying, what is this? This is something trivial. I want to see what's inside. This is exactly what happened to the people of Israel when they brought the Ark of the Covenant in battle. We can treat it as a lucky charm. This will give us good luck. So you may ask, what's the big deal about attempting to look inside the golden box? I think it's a fair question. The thing is, the Israelites knew it represents the presence of God. They knew that the Ark was kept inside the Holy Temple. They knew already that there's a certain protocol on who handles the Ark of the Covenant. Only priests can handle the Ark of the Covenant. Now, even knowing all these things, they still acted as if the holiness of God is something trivial. And they treated the Ark of the Covenant with contempt. It's like something like a tourist attraction to them. Remember when the Ark of the Covenant was captured, a boy was born, and his name was Ichabod, the glory of God has departed? That means when the Ark returned, the glory of God has returned. This is the very presence of God that returned to them. And yet, they treated the returning glory like some tourist attraction and nothing but contempt. Let's make this clear. The reason why God allowed it to be captured was because they used the ark as a lucky charm. They treated God with contempt. The reason why the Philistines suffered the plague was because, again, they treated God with contempt. They put the ark of the covenant in the temple of Dagon. The same way, the reason why God struck the 70 people in Beth Shemesh is because they looked into the ark, treated God with contempt. So what is this treating God with contempt? Is it possible that I violate this and do the same act of treating God with contempt? Here's a perfect story that illustrates this contempt. Go all the way back to Isaac. Isaac had two sons. Two sons is named Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older. Jacob was the younger. Esau, because he's older, he, by birth, he will succeed his father. He will become the chieftain of the tribe. He will inherit much of the possessions of Isaac. He will become the chief, the leader. And Jacob, because he's younger, he will follow his brother. But you know, Jacob is ambitious. He knows. He doesn't want that. He wants to be the leader. He wants to have the possession. So he's, and this guy is smart. So he was trying to think, how can I get that birthright? What will I do? He's not thinking of killing his brother, of course. But one day, he learned that his brother was going hunting. And he knew that when his brother comes back, without a thing, he's going to be tired and hungry. And so he did his best. Chop some carrots, chop some potatoes, put in some bulalo, if you know that. He cooked the best awesome bulabase, because Philip is here. Bulabase. <laughs> this is a, an awesome soup. And Esau came back. He was tired. He was wasted. He was hungry. And he, he smelled that soup. And Jacob was waiting for this moment. Finally, he was there, white apron, big smile, and a good bowl of soup. And he was waiting. 
with only one condition. Esau, I'm going to give this to you only if you give up your right as firstborn. And you think, this is a low blow. I mean, this is cheap shot. Esau would understand. Because who in their right mind would give up as important as your inheritance to a bowl of soup? I mean, nobody would do that, right? But Esau did. <laughs> this is interesting. Esau did. Esau exchanges inheritance for a bowl of soup. See, instead of finding ways to keep his rights, he fell for the trick. He didn't have other options. To him, either he keeps his right but dies of starvation, or he gives up his rights and lives to fight another day, James Bond. I mean, what is he thinking? This is what the scriptures, this is why the scriptures call Esau godless. Check it out. Hebrews 12, 16. Esau was called godless. Esau was godless not because he didn't believe in God. Esau was godless because he treated the God-given right to be nothing compared to a bowl of soup. See, his God-given right as firstborn includes all the promises God gave to Abraham, all the lands, all the fame, all the wealth, and the protection of God, Yahweh himself. He gave them all up for a measly bowl of soup. I mean, what do you call this guy? In other words, he was an idiot for doing this, thinking that the bowl of soup is more important than what God is ready to give him. He was an idiot for failing to discern between what is holy and what is ordinary. He was an idiot for choosing the momentary pleasure more than the thing that has eternal value. The word of proverb is worse, fool. So I'm not really doing, saying a bad word. This is from the Bible. The word of Proverbs used was fool. And the people of Beth Shemesh decided to see what's inside the ark because they want to satisfy their curiosity. What is inside it? They were acting like Esau, godless, contempt. Let me try another one. In 2013, there was this 15-year-old Chinese tourist who went to Egypt because this guy was rich, as in rich and an idiot. He put graffiti on the 3,500-year-old Egyptian artwork. In the graffiti, there was some, a Mandarin inscription, but in English, it means... Ding Jin Hao was here. It was his name. <laughs> you see that there? Ding Jin Hao was here. <laughs> I mean, he has no respect for art because he was rich. He thinks he can do away with everything. See, if you are horrified with the desecration of capital in January 6th, and all the riots that happened in the pandemic, and with the drug lords that facilitate the crossing of our border and the recent spy balloon of China, these are nothing compared to what the people of Beth Shemesh did by looking into the Ark of the Covenant of God. We are talking about God. We're not just talking about a, an artwork or a masterpiece. We're talking about the Ark that represents the very presence of God. And you may say, how is this thing even relevant to me, Pastor? I mean, I, we don't have the ark. How is this relevant to my life? I need some, some encouragement today. Let me encourage you. The entire book of Corinthians was written on the premise 
that the church is holy, it's sacred. The church, we're talking about not the building, but the people, we, the church. So Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He said, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Let me say that again. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not just a temple, but the temple of the Holy Spirit. The ark represents the presence of God. The temple also represents the presence of God. We are the temple of God. If looking at the ark is sacrilege, compromises in the lives of believers that deals with its body is also a sacrilege. See, if looking at the ark is an act of contempt, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 would say sexual immorality in all its forms is an act of contempt. Why? Because our body is a temple, not just any other temple, but temple of the Holy Spirit. What this means is that any compromise that involves our bodies, our minds, our souls, our hearts, is nothing but an act of desecration of the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is not just your body, that's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen, it only takes one lustful look with intent, and it's considered adultery. Now, l- let me pause in. Whenever you read Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, and you see Jesus saying, if you look lustfully at the woman, see, looking lustfully is not the issue. Looking lustfully with intent, check your Bible. There's a word intent. There's an intent to do something more. It's not just looking, because we cannot gouge out our eyes and not look. We cannot just walk with, (laughs) do you close your eyes so that you don't see, you know, women? You know, it's hard to do that. Check your Bible. Jesus said, if you look lustfully at a woman with intent, that's considered adultery. (sighs) My goodness. It's not about the woman. It's about the thing that corrupts in the heart. Because if the thing that corrupts in the heart is the same thing that you give to God, then it's not acceptable. If your heart, if the Bible said you have to love the Lord your God with all our heart and your heart is corrupt, then it's not acceptable to God. God will not receive it, accept it. See, when we look lustfully at a woman with intent, the same goes with women. When you look lustfully at a man with intent, that's considered adultery. So much so that it only took one look for Eve to see that the fruit was a light in her eyes. This is like a woman going to a mall and looking at this <laughs> latest, nicest, colorful Hermes bag saying, buy me, buy me. 50% off. I think there's no discount for Hermes. They never go on sale. Or that awesome Air Jordan. I, I got to do this also for men. To be fair. I mean, for Eve, it only wa- took one look to take it and eat it. One look with intent. For David, it only took one look to desire another man's wife. 
And for whatever reason, by the way, Bathsheba was bathing on her roof and she knew the king was looking at him. She's not innocent, by the way. She knew the king was looking at her. It took one look for David to see and covet another man's wife. He took it, he saw it, and he took it. See, the world is messed up. People do not see their bodies as sacred. We now live in a culture, we call it hook-up culture. The feminism was raised to another level where women brag about how many men they slept with. They call it body count. What's your body count? It's a bragging right. See, every spring break here in Miami, we have spring break. But free spring break is not spring break. It's a break for college students. It's their break to go wild and party. That's what spring break means. See, but for the church to behave like unbelievers, for the church to behave like Esau, for the church to behave like Eve and David, and to think that Jesus doesn't mind we compromise our bodies, that's a shame. That's an act of contempt. And we are not just talking exclusively of sexual immorality here. See, because in the same letter, in the book of Corinthians, Paul taught that our bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit. And he was also addressing the fact, of the issue of division in the church. And he said that there were among you behaving like outsiders, because there are gossips and fighting and loose talk and envy, and people do not want to preserve unity. They're trying to fight with each other. People keep complaining and criticizing. This is not just an issue of sexual immorality. This is also an issue of division in the church. See, here's the thing. Jesus is serious about his church. Would you say amen to that? You're not convinced. Please. (laughs) Jesus is serious about his church. How do I know that? Because Jesus died for his church. That's serious. Now, let me put this fact. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is not anyone else's church. This is Jesus' church alone. Jesus died for this church. He's serious about this church. Jesus loved this church so much that he will do everything to protect the unity of the church. And so Paul gave us a solemn warning. It doesn't matter what theology you believe in or what tradition you're coming from. If you want to remain in God's good graces, you better pay attention. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 and 17. Listen. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives, dwells in you? Here's the warning. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. I did not make this up. This is in the Bible. I, I search in all versions and translations. It is there. And why is that? It says, for God's temple is holy, you are that temple. The church is God's temple. See, here's the thing. Paul was not talking to people outside the church. People was talking to people in the pews. He was addressing this to people who are members of the church, not just to people who identify with the church or the guests of the church. He was talking to the church members. Church members who are trying to divide the church because they're compromising, because they're behaving like Esau. These people were not paying attention. Jesus said, it was very clear, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God will do everything to protect his church. And if you are causing, and I hope you're not, if you are causing division in the church by complaining and criticizing and gossiping and compromising, 
Paul was very clear, God will destroy you. This is like a curse pattern in the book of Deuteronomy. You see, in the book of Deuteronomy, there are blessings and curses. This is like another curse for those who will try to destroy the church. If you're thinking that this message is personal, it is because it's personal. Whatever Jesus takes personal, we who love Jesus must also take this personally. Would you say amen to that? But I want to encourage you today. I don't want to just end up like trying to scold people here. I want to end up with an invitation. See, when the prodigal son asked for his inheritance, he practically ran away. He was not lost. He ran away. Okay? He knows his way back. He ran away. Why did he run away? Because he was curious of the pleasures outside his home. So he decided to go. He decided to ask his dad, Dad, I want to have my inheritance now. It's not tomorrow, it's now. But you see, in the culture of that time, you only give inheritance when the father dies. It's like, so it's like saying, Dad, I want you to die now. I want the, I want the benefit of my inheritance. And his dad, because he loved him, gave his inheritance. His dad loved him so much. So he spent everything away, and then he realized his mistakes, and he decided to finally come home. But while he was away, his father did not go looking for him. His father was just staying there. He was waiting for him to come back, because he knew his son. He knew his son is having a season in life. He knew there's something going with my son, but, but he won't listen to me, so I'd rather leave him and have him go away for some time, because he knows his son will come back to him. He loved his son. And so he waited. He loved his son so much, he let him go, gave some pocket money. But he did not close his door. The father did not close his door. See, the love of God is like the father patiently waiting for the return of his son. And so if there's any encouragement for us, maybe it's time to come back home. See, you cannot continue treating God with contempt. We cannot continue disrespecting and treating God with contempt. We may not know it, but there's a solemn warning. Those who destroy the church, those who destroy the body of the church, your body, my body, our bodies, God will also destroy. I think some of us or many of us, I think all of us fall under God's grace. I think the reason why we are still here with good health is because God is trying to be patient with us. If there's any reason, if there's any encouragement, if there's any message today, maybe it's time to realize, to come back. Maybe it's time not just to surrender and accept you are defeated. Maybe it's time to submit. Because submission is different from surrender. Maybe it's time to realize that what the world offers does not carry real value. See, the world offers only entertainment, pure entertainment, lights and sounds. But what the world offers that not, does not carry real value like eternal life, joy in the Lord, peace with God, the world does not offer those things. It's time to come back. Let's close our eyes. I'm going to give you a moment as we sing this song, Surrender. I could sing it with, with us. Sing it with your heart. And after one line, I'm going to invite you in prayer.